Welcome back to Alyssa Explains It All. This is our 50th episode. Woo! Woo! <laughs> Thank you, Producer Matt. I liked your woo. I can't believe this is the 50th episode. It's it's pretty wild. And and we've had so many like fun guests. I I do not want us to start shouting out guests because I feel like there is a higher than normal chance we will forget one or two names and then feel yeah. really bad about it. So I guess yeah, a, yeah. a general thank you to everybody who's been here so far. Yes. I guess we can finally announce it here that you have a second podcast now with producer Matt uh, YAOK that people can go and subscribe to. The first episode is going to drop on Valentine's Day. So cute. But also we have a return guest who also has a book that's available right now. The day that we're Literally. talking about this. Yes, it is. We had Rena Martine come back on the podcast. Her book is called The Sex You Want, A Shameless Journey to Deep Intimacy, Honest Pleasure, and A Life You Love. And I'm sure by now I would have already posted a picture of what my copy of this book looks like. I've never put so many tabs in a book in my life. It was borderline not helpful because... There's so many amazing things and there's so many tabs that I was like, it's every page. Every page is so valuable. There's so much amazing information on it that it's like, I, I just I just loved every minute of it. I loved every minute of it. I think like every other page is tapped. I mean, I'm looking at it right now as you're flipping it through your hand. Mm -hmm. And like, even when you flip the pages, it sounds like when someone puts a baseball card in a bicycle <laughs> spoke, because there's no spot in the book where you can flip it and not have your finger hitting a couple of those tabs. It is yep. it is chaos. It's, it is. it's like the red string map of a book right now. Yes, <laughs> that is exactly what it is. But I, I, I've read quite a few books about sex and sexuality, and um, I am not too big on reading like self-help books like I'm better with audiobooks but this is a book where I just constantly felt so seen and so heard and validated and it has it's broken up into three different parts and it gives you oh there's a whole part of it that's really mostly about sex um and that kind of comes at the end of it which I think is so interesting because the whole beginning two parts are the building blocks of it and it's like okay, we are going to build your confidence. We're going to find ways to unravel the shame that you've built up. And everything is so actionable too. Like it's, it doesn't feel like you're reading a book and then you're like, okay, shit, now I have a to-do list of things I'm going to do to, to make myself feel better. Like as you're moving through this book, you're actually working on these things. It's just so special and so well put together. And Rena is one of my favorite guests I've ever had on. Um, because she's just so smart and so um, like she, because she was previously a district attorney, she has this mind for statistics that I like, she could call them like, even in the first episode that she did, she was pulling them from the top of her head. I was like, damn, yeah. her brain is just like amazing. I love it. Well, real quick, before we jump to your chat with, with Rena, I do have to ask, you ready to do 50 more of these? I'm more than ready. All right. I've never been more ready. I'm in it for the long haul. This is my, I have a long-term relationship with my podcast. Well, there we and go. My, and my podcast listeners, I'm putting in the work. All right. Well, <laughs> now I think it's time. I think we can go and learn about the sex that we want. The sex that we want, the sex that you want, the sex that Rena is having, and <laughs> and you guys are all going to have. Enjoy this conversation with Rena. Please go pick up her book, The Sex You Want. She's amazing. You're going to love this. You're going to love this conversation. Enjoy. Hi, Rena. I'm so happy you're back. Hi. I'm so happy to be back and see your face. Yes. This is so wild, actually, because the first time you came on the podcast, you mentioned that you were writing a book. And I think I think you had maybe like, I don't know if there was a date for when it was going to come out yet, but I think you had just like finalized everything. The book was happening. It was real. And now I have it in my hands, the sex you want. And I can't believe the time is here. The time has come. Oh my gosh. It felt like forever. And now that the time is here, it feels like it's flying so fast. But yeah. yes, you've been here for the journey. 
It's so, it's so wild. And so for anybody who hadn't listened to the first episode, which if they haven't, they should, do you want to give a quick rundown of your background and how it led you to write the sex you want? You have like one of the coolest backstories to how you ended up working in this whole industry. So please, please share. Yes. So I used to be a deputy district attorney with the Mm -hmm. Los Angeles County DA's office. And so I did that for 14 years. And during that time, I specialized in sex crimes, child abuse, and domestic violence cases. Um, And towards kind of the tail end of my time at the DA's office, I was going through some major shifts in my personal life. The Mm -hmm. biggest being that I was convinced or I came to the conclusion that I'm just not cut out for this white picket fence of vanilla conventional monogamy. And so simultaneously at the DA's office, I was hitting my burnout point where I realized that there were problems with the justice system, that I couldn't necessarily bring justice to survivors of some of the most horrific sex crimes you can imagine. And that led me to a point in my career where the job just became a job as opposed to a calling. And with what was going on in my personal life and all the work I had done to get to a place where I felt like I had worked through my sexual shame with a therapist, but also reading all the books and listening to all the podcasts, I realized that I wanted to help people in a different capacity. So I got certified as a coach and began Uh, working with women one-on-one, and that was several years ago. And now today I have still my practice as a coach. Um, I work with women. I work with couples as an intimacy coach. I also educate. And as you mentioned, I have a book um, that, that is really the most accessible way to bring deep intimacy honest pleasure and a life you love into your day-to-day existence. I wrote the book that I wish I had had during my Mm -hmm. own journey. I saw a few kind of big gaps in the market because it's beautiful. I can say there is no shortage these days of sexual self-help books. Yeah. But, you know, I'm not a PhD in this stuff. There are plenty of those out there and they have written those books. Mm-hmm. What makes this different and why I chose to embark on this journey is that what I saw in my practice was that women, the best way for us to resolve our own shame when it comes to sex, which is often the most hidden part of who we are, isn't by hearing from people in these ivory towers. Mm-hmm. It's by hearing from women like us. And yeah. so this book obviously is, it's a self-help book. It's its told in, in terms of lessons, different lessons, but it's narrative and story driven. So my own stories, the stories of the clients I've worked with, and it covers topics that just haven't been discussed in the general world of sexual self-help, like BDSM, like non-monogamy, like female sexual fluidity. Normally you'd have to go out and buy an entire book just on mm-hmm. those subjects. And so- This isn't just a book about sex. As you know, we don't even get to sex until the third part of the book. Yes. We start start with empowerment. We start with mindset. We start with creating a new relationship with your body. And then we move into, okay, so how do you relate to other people in relationships? And then we get into sex because you can't just throw the sex band-aids on stuff. I'm not just here giving you new positions to try, et cetera, et cetera. We're actually going through the work. So um, I take pride in the fact that I give you specific steps to take, not just mm-hmm. go off and think about this, but here are the exact words to use to have this conversation. Mm-hmm. Here's the app to use if you're looking for this. Here's the yes. product to use. So giving people as much guidance as I possibly can, because that's what I needed. My therapist couldn't tell me these things. Mm -hmm. I wanted somebody to give me the tools. And so um, I'm sharing years and years worth of trial and error and stumbling with with everyone else so that they can fast track to this kind of deep intimacy that we all deserve to have. Yeah. And it's so beautiful. And the way that you um, are phrasing it as like the book you wish you had. I also, I mean, I'm 30. I got into all of this stuff when I was 26, 27. And so it's only been like a couple of years for me. And even in that time, like I wish, I wish I knew all of the stuff that I knew now in my early twenties, but if someone gave me this in my early twenties, I think I would be 
like a completely different person because you start the whole book and this whole journey. Like what would your life look like if you didn't have shame be a part of it? Like if that wasn't a driving force into like so many of the decisions that we make and not just in sex, but like everywhere. And once you can conquer it, I think you word it this way too in the book, once you conquer it in your sex life, there's no way that you can't conquer it anywhere else and everywhere else. And so I love that perspective. And I also love that the way that you wrote it through storytelling also gives like really real examples of what this looks like and sounds like these are actual things that you can say and these are actual apps that you can use and i have like i all of your um like journal prompts and the apps and whatever they have gray tabs in my book and so i can easily find them when i want to go back to them and there's so much just really helpful actionable things which even talking about that like ivory tower i think is so so valid and so true the amount of times i've picked up books that are you know, they're helpful and they're interesting, but they don't sound like they were written by someone like me or for someone like me. They were written for people who maybe have, have already dipped a toe in this water and they've done some exploring and they've, they've thrown themselves into the water somehow. And this feels like the most holistic entry level way to be like, this is how we're going to start this whole journey. And then after that, like the world is your oyster and you can, you have the freedom and the permission to really explore. And I think you did that so beautifully. And so much of the book is also just so like validating, borderline loud sometimes. Sometimes I'm reading it and I'm like, yeah, it's loud. It's loud. I got it. No, I got it though. It's loud, but I got it. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> yes. But it's great. And you're so generous and open with what you share about yourself and your journey. And like the perfect way to even to even describe that is how you start the book. Like the first sentence is, I am paying to go have uh, a dominatrix experience. It, and it's have literally, yeah, I'm about to pay for sex. Yes. yes. <laughs> it's so good. And it's like immediately life exists outside of your comfort zone. And so that's what I did. Was there, what was the reason for um, starting the book with that specifically? That story. I mean, as you know, that is probably the most graphic story in the entire book. Mm -hmm. And that to me, it's the prologue, right? This Mm -hmm. is where I am today. So this was actually an experience I had at the very beginning when I decided I was going to write a book. Just the timing worked out that way. And as I left that session with, with a sex worker, with a pro dom, I thought to myself, oh my God, I have come so far and what better way to Mm -hmm. show where we are than by starting a book with me paying for sex, but also knowing (laughs) that I used to be a sex crimes prosecutor. Right. And so it's inviting the reader to get curious, like, okay, well, something must have happened for this straight-laced professional woman to go from where (laughs) she was to here. And let's follow along in this journey so that we can invite ourselves to ask questions mm-hmm. about how we're living our own lives. Yeah. And you reference like falling, giving people permission to fall out of love with this version of themselves that they thought was them. And that that I think as as I've gotten older has been like a big part of my just my my life experience is realizing this story that I wrote for myself might not actually be the one that that is mine. And I just kind of made that up. And you talk a little more later about the stories we tell ourselves and the stories we tell ourselves about other people and all of that, all of that kind of stuff. Um, But falling out of love with this version of yourself that you kind of like, it's, it's your own little prison that you built for yourself and being able to say, oh, no, I actually don't think that that's that's like not actually authentically myself. I'm not living authentically. And that whole story felt like a really like perfect way to say, I'm, I know tomorrow I'm going to speak to a hundred women. They know that I am a respected attorney and this is what I'm doing the day before. And so my story is just very different than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. And this idea of giving permission, giving yourself permission to fall out of love mm-hmm. with what you thought you wanted whether that's a career, whether that's a relationship, whether that's, you know, the city you live in, you are allowed to change your mind. And I think so many people need to hear that. I needed to hear that 
a long time ago. And so thank you for highlighting that because that's that's a theme, right? Throughout the, yeah. the whole book. And this idea that we build these prisons for ourselves and that the key to those is actually in our hands. And I know mm-hmm. that sounds kind of hokey, but but you know, in the abstract, yes, this sounds cliche, but that's why I'm choosing to illustrate this point over and over and over again through stories and not just my own, but you know, the dozens and dozens of clients I've had the honor of working with over the years to show that change is possible. Yeah. And it's a nice um, way to kind of ground your your previous experience to say, you know, I have I have this this career that's a big part of my life and it is not really related to all of these other amazing parts of myself that I'm now finding ways to express. So when other people are reading this and they are our world's teachers and, uh, you know, whatever, whatever they are, a career um, that feels like it might be defining of their character. There's so much more to you as a person that that is just waiting and just like bubbling under the surface when you give yourself permission to like really embrace it. And I, I love that, that whole process. Um, and I like that that is a theme in the book in general is finding your authentic self, living your most authentic life. And that then t- going into how it translates into your, into your sex life. Cause it is so connected. Yeah. You have to have a solid and loving relationship with yourself first. Mm-hmm. And the good news is you'll be shown exactly how to do that yeah. instead of just, you know, love yourself first, end of tweet. Like, no, yeah. how do I, how do I do that? And so, yeah. so yeah, it's, it's uh, a lot of tools to get you started on your journey. Yeah. Uh, one of those tools that I, that I really enjoyed and I liked how it kind of tied back into everything else is you start with the intimacy bucket list. Can you explain what that is and how it ties into sort of everything else that you do in the journey of this of this book? Yeah. So I uh, the first homework assignment in the book is to come up with a list of 27 things that you want to do, uh, be, or experience in your intimate life. And let me just pause right there. When I say intimate life, you might be thinking I mean sex, right? Because when you hear intimate life or intimacy, you might be thinking that what I'm talking about is sex because we often use the word intimacy as a polite euphemism for sex. Mm -hmm. But that's not what I mean. Intimacy is showing up as who you are and allowing others to see you for who you are. So you wearing a two-piece to the beach, even though you don't have, you know, a beach-ready body, air quotes, obviously around that, that is intimacy. That is you showing up. That's intimacy with yourself. That's that's how you're walking through the world. You being able to give your best friend a hug instead of shutting down, that is intimacy. Yes, you exploring your sexual fantasies, that is intimacy too. But so you come up with your list of 27 things that you want to do, be, or accomplish when it comes to intimacy, the big umbrella. And I give a long laundry list of examples that I've mined from my prior clients because this is also the first assignment they do before we even have our first session. This is their pre-session work. And why do we do this? One, because every single person is unique. And and two, it's going to give you a roadmap to how to start checking things off your list. And these don't need to be things you can accomplish tomorrow or even in the next five years. This is a bucket list, right? And it's going to vary person to person. Um, But what I tell folks to do is, okay, pick one thing off of your list, one thing. And what's the babyest step you can take this week to getting closer to that one thing, right? So some examples would be, say that's the bathing suit, the bikini example. All right, go online this week and find a site with a generous return policy and just order a bunch of bathing suits, okay? Do that. Um, all right, well, I want to explore anal sex with a partner. Okay, start off by ordering yourself some lube and ordering yourself a set of small anal plugs just to use on your own. So treat this as your North Star that you come back to. And I refer back to this assignment later in the book too, when you are out there and you're trying to gauge compatibility with a prospective or even current partner. Because I also invite folks to reevaluate 
the relationships they're actually in right now. If you are on the fence, you know, should I stay or should I go? Mm-hmm. You're going to have you're going to have tools to evaluate the answer to that question, but this is your unique blueprint. This is your north star that you can come back to time and time again. So um so that's why we start there is just to give you an idea of what makes you unique and to give you, you know, a compass to use as you're trying to reach your goals. Yeah, I I love that whole exercise. I love having that be the thing that grounds the rest of your experience and your growth as you move through all of the different activities in the book. But I like that you give the the tool of uh, writing an erotic short story to help you brainstorm. You give that little list and encourage people to get really specific. There's a lot there. So even if you feel like, dang, that sounds really hard. 27 feels like a lot. I promise you it's not. When you actually sit down and do it, I think once the wheels start turning, then you really start getting this list going and have that have that be your north star through all of these other like very exciting new decisions that you're going to make as you dig through this whole story. Um, and I had briefly touched on like the rewriting your story portion portion of the book and how that's something that like as I've gotten older, I've started to think about, okay, what are the stories that I've told myself about myself and the way that other people perceive me and the way that I perceive others? And you talk about that in the book a bit as well. And I think in the first part specifically. Um, and I love that framework of, of what is the story that you're telling yourself? And the, the area of it that I thought was most interesting was when you talk about traumatic experiences, because now trauma like flies around like around the the social media and everyone's talking about their traumatic experiences and while those are all very valid one of the pieces of framework that you give to trauma and that experience that i think is so interesting and not talked about enough is that your body and your bodily reaction is what determines what is traumatic for you and sometimes it's your fourth grade teacher saying something really mean or um, whatever, making you feel small. And it's not these other things that on paper are the quote traumatic experiences. And you referenced how like you can count on your on one hand, the amount of times you were having sex with somebody and it it triggered a a, um, like a, a response from you, a trauma response from you. But the amount of times where you've like gotten yelled at, and then you've had a trauma response from that is like you can't you've lost count of those and i loved that distinction i feel like i never hear anyone talk about it that way and it's just so like validating and so true the amount of just random stories that i'll say to my mom like do you remember when this happened because it it really upset me and i think about that and i was eight but i think about it all the time all these random small things that like are these these building blocks in this story that you create for yourself i i loved that you wrote that oh thank you and and you're so right we are hearing the word the words trauma and trigger being thrown around so recklessly in the same way, you know, if you're having a bad day or your mood's going up and down, you wouldn't say, well, I'm bipolar today, right? Like these words have very specific meanings. And to your point, trauma, there is no universal definition of a traumatic event. And so I give some examples, you know, a police officer who's used to hearing gunshots is probably not going to go into a trauma response after hearing a gunshot, but the survivor of a school shooting might, right? A surgeon probably isn't going to go into a trauma response as, you know, an ER surgeon seeing somebody die in front of them. But if they see, you know, a loved one die in front of them, that might be a trauma to them. And so in my life, yes, I have survived multiple instances of sexual assault, but I'm not triggered over them very often. And the things that trigger me are me being yelled at in situations that I perceive to be safe spaces. So I go into that, but I also give sexual and very specific examples when it comes to clients and how this has shown up for them. And then how to not ignore and avoid the trauma and the triggers, because we actually want to work through them. It's like, you know, the, the pile of laundry. Yes, you can throw it on the bed or put it on the chair, right? But that's not working through it. It's not neatly folding it up and putting it away. And so understanding how trauma works, how our brain works, and how we begin to gently lean into our triggers so that we can work through this, Mm -hmm. that is 
a journey that people think needs to take a really long time. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, this terrible thing happened to me and ergo, I'm going to be in years of therapy for it. Yeah. Not necessarily. You can work through this in a pretty short amount of time if you have the proper guidance and framework with which to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You talked about it taking like a few weeks for some people that you um, were working with to reprogram the way that their mind-body connection was receiving things that were previously triggering these um, traumatic responses. And that just like gives so much hope to to people who feel like that's like that's their situation forever. And it's not true. There's There are ways that you can absolutely remediate and heal from those types of experiences. And I love the the analogy of the clothes on, on a bed. Like that is so, so well put and such a great way to to visualize what what trauma can feel like, where it's always kind of there and you can push it, and you said this in the book, push it to one side of the bed, but it's still there and you don't ever really feel the relief until you fold everything and put it away. That doesn't yeah. mean that it's not like in your mind room. It's not, it's there, but it's it's found its home. And so you no longer have to have it, you know, be something that's repeatedly brought up to you, especially in a way where it's going to be a surprise. Like I liked um, how the way that you talked about your experience with some of your clients being, you know, addressing it so head on that if they have a response to someone touching their stomach, we're going to train your brain to receive touch on your stomach to feel safe so that it's so specific that you, that you know that that's likely not going to be something that you'll have to deal with anymore. I can't imagine the relief that those women felt being able to actually have those experiences again and be like, oh my God, this is, I'm sure it made a world of difference to them. Yeah. And I want to say something just in case this conversation about trauma is resonating with anybody listening to this right mm -hmm. now, because I've had so many women come to me and say, Rena, there must be something so broken about me because I have gone through therapy for years and I'm still not fixed, air quotes. And I want everyone to understand that you can't think your way out of trauma and you can't talk your way out of it. Thinking about it, trauma wasn't something that was said, right? Trauma is an event mm -hmm. or series of events. So something happened. And so in order to put the pile of clothes away, you have to introduce opposite action. And that you can't talk your way through, right? An analogy I give is if you got into a terrible car accident on the freeway, yes, your body would understandably go into a trauma response the next time you get behind the wheel of a car. Mm -hmm. So, you know, do you avoid driving altogether? No, you would maybe sit behind the wheel one day and then the next day you'd take a spin around the block and the day after you would drive a mile, you know, in the city and you would build up and build up sending new data to your brain that says, oh, I'm not going to get hurt every time mm -hmm. I sit behind the wheel of a car versus, well, I'm just going to talk about the accident all the time. I'm going to watch YouTube videos about, you know, car accidents right, as a way to heal through this. So no, you yeah. have to do the scary thing, but you do it in the babyest of steps. Yeah. Yeah. You're very good at, de at defining what these baby steps are too. Um, and I appreciate that. And, and pretty much through, I think everything that you're guiding your readers through, there is a babyest step so that it doesn't feel like the big scary thing. And though there are parts of this book where like you're talking about like ethical non-monogamy and BDSM and things that feel maybe big and scary to people who have no experience with them and no exposure to them at all, still finding ways to make it seem so approachable, babyest of baby steps, and doing that in categories like trauma and BD and trauma responses, and at the same time doing it for something like BDSM. And knowing that there are baby steps to everything in life, everything, and it makes everything so approachable. And you, you've done such a great job of guiding your readers through that whole process when it's scary in the pursuit of something, you know, as relief or as something that's like fun and going to add something spicy to your, to your life. And I just, I love that. Thank you. <laughs> oh, that's another thing that you talk about is being better at taking um, compliments. 
I just feel like like I'm just gonna be singing the praises of this book for so long because there's so much about it that's that goes beyond sex and beyond like what I think I was anticipating and more about like really finding ways to be confident and secure in yourself and the things that you want and one of the things that I that was one of those moments where I was like oh it's loud is when you're talking about perfectionism because I don't find myself to be a perfectionist that much like I'm okay with sometimes things don't go the way you want them to and it's just kind of you know it is what it is and then you you said if you don't think that you are a perfectionist you struggle asking for help and if you struggle asking for help it's likely because you don't want to be perceived as not having your shit together yeah. and that's when it was loud <laughs> for Alyssa I was like woof Yikes. <laughs> yes, yes, because a lot of people are like, no, I'm not a perfectionist. And and I think I say, you know, poker players have tells and a tell yeah. of being a perfectionist is that you struggle to ask people for help, which yeah. is why, you know, I will assign this to my clients. I assign I I suggest this and encourage the readers to do it. Ask five people for help this week. And it can be something mm -hmm. small. Hey, restaurant recommendation, book recommendation. Or it could be something big, like, hey, I need a ride to the airport. I say yeah. that, but I would personally never do that because I live in Los Angeles. <laughs> and there are two things I don't do as a grown-up. I don't ask my friends to help me move, and I don't ask for rides to the airport. <laughs> fair. So fair. That is so fair. Oh, God. Yeah, I loved, I loved that, and I liked how gratitude and gratitude practices was a big part of um, remediating some of that that perfectionism. What is the reason that you feel gratitude and gratitude practices helps with something like perfectionism? Because I think without reading all of the context to it, they seem sort of disconnected. Yeah. So the easiest way to start chipping away at perfectionism is by expressing gratitude to people. Mm. Because that's showing, hey, I'm not an island. I don't have to do this alone. So you thanking someone, you know, thank you for for being here and listening. That's saying like, I don't have all my shit together. Mm. I need people. And perfectionists, you know, want to move through the world as though they, they are an island, that they don't need anyone else. And so not only are you chipping away at your perfectionism, but you are creating moments of vulnerability with people mm. in your life. And not just, hey, I'm grateful for you, but I'm grateful for you because. Yeah. And and so doing that in the moment, I, I give um I, I talk about a former client who couldn't form relationships um in her intimate life. So she was good at the sex part, but it was the the after part, right? Mm -hmm. Um, where she's like, oh my gosh, this person wants to watch The Simpsons with me and like cuddle yeah. on the couch. No, like I'm I I need to leave. And she couldn't form relationships with her colleagues either because, mm -hmm. you know, she wanted to, to be that island. And so she started thanking her colleagues for things. Mm -hmm. She sucked it up and she was like, oh, do I really have to express gratitude and start thanking them? And I said, well, yeah, you do because that's, <laughs> that's why you're here, right? You're not going to have something different if you keep doing more of the same. And so she started doing that and in a very short period of time, the nature and depth of her relationships with other people shifted dramatically. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, you might have the sex part down, but you mm -hmm. have the intimacy part down. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And you can't have intimacy if you are a perfectionist because in order to be intimate, you have to be willing to show up as who you are, your true mm -hmm. self, not faking orgasms, not having yeah. sex with the lights off. You know, that is what we're talking about here, and it permeates every area of your life. And so I, mm -hmm. I give folks this question, you know, what experiences have you missed out on in life because yeah. of perfectionism? Mm -hmm. Just start thinking of that. You're not going to change it overnight, but start thinking about how perfectionism shows up in your life or how it has historically. Yeah, yeah. And that vulnerability that it requires to – to show gratitude and to open up and build those little intimate connections can be so hard for people. And I think for women, it's interesting to see a little bit of this shift now where you talk about how women get rewarded for going through life emotionless. And I, 
I relate to that. And I think it's sort of an overcorrection of like, well, I need people to take me seriously. So I need Mm -hmm. to be so serious that I have no emotions. I have no vulnerability. I'm not capable of opening myself up like that. And this overcorrection then makes it impossible to have these really deep, meaningful, intimate connections with people and intimate like you were saying, beyond sex and beyond like sexual relationships, but even just in your day-to-day life with your coworkers, you miss out on all of that when you've decided that the vulnerability is too hard. And it's hard, but it's so worth opening up and and trying to achieve. Yeah. And you know, and that this whole idea then spills into another chapter in the book, which is stop playing the cool girl, right? I was just gonna talk about that. Yeah. And so, you know, I say you can either be the cool girl or you can have true love. Pick one. Mm-hmm. And yes. yes, is being vulnerable scary? Absolutely. But that's like saying, you know, I want to travel the world, but you're scared to get on a plane. It's like, yes, you need to wear sunscreen to protect you from the sun's harmful rays, but we also need vitamin D. So mm-hmm. you can't keep this armor on. You yeah. can't. If you, yeah. if you want to be close with people, if you want to have deep relationships, whether those be platonic or romantic, you Mm got to drop the cool girl act. Yeah. I feel like it's dropping that armor. It's finding the things that are – and I think this also – the the reason the bucket list – exercise I think is really great is because of course you have there like as you continue going through this whole process you can add and change and that bucket list will grow and morph and whatever and when you are able to let that armor down stop being the cool girl I'm sure that bucket list changes so much and then towards the end of it you're like wow I actually am a different person than I thought that I was going into this whole experience and that's so cool. It's so cool. And the cool girl kind of prototype is always so funny to me. It reminds me of the way that I would date in my early twenties. Like that was like, that was the way, you know, got to like let the text sit for a little while and, and like, let it just, you know, you have to be, I'm interested in everything he's interested in. And, and if he doesn't like what I like, it's fine. Cause I'm cool. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. I will go to sports games, even though I don't like them and whatever. And, um, I think you talked about, I don't remember if if this was um, your ex-husband, but it was it was some an ex where when you started using your voice, he started raising his. And when I read that, I was like, oh my God, chills everywhere. Because that's how that goes. You play the cool girl, cool girl for so long until you literally can't anymore. And then you've created this whole issue that didn't, that wouldn't have been there had you not tried to be the cool girl from yeah. the start. Yeah. And if you think about it, it's it's deceptive, right? Mm-hmm. You are putting on this mask and allowing people to fall in love with a pretend version of who you are. Yeah. And the facade, that kind of cognitive dissonance, that can only last for so long. Yeah, And then you end up in a situation where there's a lot of resentment because this person's like, wait, who are you? Yeah. And yeah. And I, you know, I can sit here and say, here are the lessons, right? But I want to remind folks, I know these lessons because I've learned them the hard way. I was not born knowing this stuff. And so, so that's why I air my dirty laundry to the extent that it shows like, here's how I learned this lesson. Mm -hmm. And I don't want you to have to go through this same stuff in order to learn this lesson the hard way too. Yeah. There's a way that you identify if you are in cool girl mode. And I can't remember what it was, how, what was like that little trick that you had for if you are playing cool girl. Okay. So if you're somebody who's out there and dating right now, right? So you're on the apps perhaps, Mm -hmm. or maybe there's one person, but you're that who you're seeing, but you're still kind of in the beginning stages. What I would suggest doing is opening up your text messages and looking like, looking at any communication you're having with mm-hmm. potential date mates and see how you word those texts and compare yeah. those to how you would talk to, I don't know, one of your besties. Are you holding back? Are you holding back from the exclamation points, right? Yeah. Are you holding back from the emojis? Are you curbing your enthusiasm to pretend as though you're not invested in this? You know, if your bestie was like, hey, let's go to this new restaurant Friday, you'd probably be like, oh, my God, I'm so excited. That sounds great. Can't wait to see you. And if someone who you're dating suggests the same thing, you're like, okay, sounds good. No punctuation. Oh, my God. That is you playing the cool girl. Yeah. 
because so many people think, well, you know, I have to make them chase me like a prize. And that's this common, you know, Mm -hmm. let them chase you. And so I go in, you know, there's an entire chapter about why let them chase you is such the wrong approach. But that's Mm -hmm. the hack I give people to see if you're playing the cool girl or not. Yeah. Yeah. And what is your thought on the chase and why, I mean, obviously we can't summarize an entire chapter, but why generally the chase is sort of like silly. Why are we doing that? For what? Well, it's problematic for a few reasons. And I, and I will kind of pivot this and talk about the chase when it comes to sex, right? Mm. So if we think about the language that we use as women when it comes to sex, uh, I gave it up, right? Mm-hmm. I lost my virginity. Yeah. It, it implies that we have this thing that we're holding on to and we're only surrendering it for someone else and it's not ours. Mm-hmm. Right. So the chase means I don't actually want this. Right. Yeah. And rather than no, sex is something I I enjoy doing and I'm going to choose to do it as soon as I want to do it. Yeah. And so it, it's it's taking ownership and saying I'm allowed to enjoy sex and I'm not just doing it because I've been, you know, emotionally beaten into submission or taken out on X number of dates for the other person to earn this. Right. 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 And you talk about the mixed messages of of uh, the way that we treat sex, even in media, but even just like our conversations about sexuality and how um, we talk about sex being a prize. But then and everyone has to, like worked so hard to achieve that from you and take, I guess, take that from you. But then it also is like sometimes doesn't feel like it's that big of a deal. It's kind of like all over the place. And I I think about that with media messaging and like how we're supposed to be pure and virginal and, you know, so innocent. But then once you're in a relationship that is accepted as being like, okay, this is one that you can't have sex in actually, then you're supposed to be like a sex God and know how to do everything. And I'm like, I'm I'm sorry. I've missed chapters. What do you mean? It's Mm -hmm. very confusing and so upsetting. It's a yeah, total Madonna horror, right? Or like yeah, yeah. Uh, what did they say? Like a mom in the streets, a freak in the sheets, kind of thing. Like yes, yes. <laughs> it's this impossible contradiction and double standard. Um, and and we're here. I, I believe that we're moving in a positive direction. Yes, there are terrible things happening um, in the country right now, in the world right now. Mm-hmm. But I do believe that overall, our sex education is moving in a better direction. I believe that sex positivity and us being able to have these conversations is moving Mm -hmm. in a better direction. And from the folks I know in the younger generations, they have this shit figured out so much better than (laughs) than I did at that age. Oh my gosh. Gen Z is going to save us all. I keep saying that. I I truly believe that. And I think part of it is because they don't care about like looking cool in the same way that I feel like other generations have. Like I, I, feel like even just the way that like TikTok performs is so different than what we've experienced even on social media. And that wasn't even like Instagram. It's not that long ago that in that Instagram started, but Instagram from the start, it was everything looked perfect. Everything looked great. And on TikTok, there are people who are quite literally sitting on their toilet and going viral for it. Yeah. And I'm like, this is amazing. I love its vulnerability. It's not being the cool girl. It's letting it all go and being themselves. And it's just beautiful. It's authenticity, and I know that's such mm-hmm. a buzzword right now, but but that's that's what it is. It's not this curated life. And when it comes to dating, people want to date people who are excited about them. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, but yeah. like I don't want to go. I'm not excited to go on a date with someone who's, you know, not showing any enthusiasm about it. Yeah. Yeah. I think even like, so I'm a big reader and I recently have gotten into like the fantasy romance category. It's great. Love it. 10 out of 10. Um, But I think even now I see more people reading like dark romance, romance, fantasy romance, like all of these like romance adjacent categories. And I really feel like it's because people don't want to have relationships 
where the other person is being the cool girl anymore. Like people Mm -hmm. don't want that. Like I want, I see it all the time too, even like in conversations with friends on social media, whatever people are wanting to feel wanted. And they've always wanted that people have always wanted to feel wanted, but felt, I think a little overshadowed by wanting to be cool and appear cool. And in reality, no, I want you to be obsessed with me and be obsessed with me out loud in all caps constantly. Yes. Why wouldn't anyone want that? Yes. People want to fall in love with other humans, not cardboard cutouts of humans. Yes, not the exactly. not the human version of the super created Instagram grid, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. One of the the parts I think of this book that is very unique to Rena and this book and your experiences and all this kind of stuff is you talk about ethical non-monogamy, but you talk about it in a very like it's just so casual and neutralized and it's so nice because uh in the same way that so many books about sex and sexuality feel like it's like ivory tower all the time this feels like oh if this is something you're interested in you totally can do it and this is something that's absolutely accessible to everyone if that's something that they want to try and even um like talking about the apps that you can use, things that are like the babyest steps into all of it. I like how you framed all of that. And one of the things I think was so interesting is you talk about the rate of jealousy in ethically non-monogamous couples being the same as they are in regular monogamous couples. Why do you think that is? Yeah, so it's not any higher than it is. And, And so I tell folks, you know, Monogamous monogamy does not shield you from from feeling jealous. It's yeah. just that we don't actually have an easy time naming that emotion when we're in monogamous relationships. Whereas mm. in poly or, or ENM ethically non-monogamous relationships, communication is so key that you you have to speak up mm-hmm. when you're feeling away. And yeah. you know, it's not up to your partner to necessarily fix that all the time. But saying, you know, and I give a few examples, but hey, um, you took your other girlfriend out to the restaurant that I had been wanting to go to, and that made me feel kind of hurt. And, yeah. you know, because it the story I was telling myself is that you actually enjoy spending time with her more than me, and that made me feel jealous, mm-hmm. right? How about, you know, is it possible if in future – um, you're welcome to take folks wherever you want to, but if it's a place we've been talking about going, we can maybe go there together first. Right. 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 That's a conversation that a lot of monogamous couples, um, obviously they're not having that because they don't have other girlfriends, at least that we know about. <laughs> don't even get me started on the infidelity rates in this country. But um, oh yeah. But you know, we're not supposed to feel jealous. And mm-hmm. so we pretend as though it's not happening or Mm -hmm. we hold it in and we explode in monogamous relationships. And so jealousy is, you know, a pretty universal human emotion. It's -hmm. just that we talk about it more in open relationships than we do in monogamous ones. Yeah. And, and you reference Esther Perel a, a bunch in the book. And one of the things that she said when I first kind of started in all of um, sex education and coaching and all of that, one of the things that she said that I think w- like blew the lid off of, of the way that I thought about relationships is when she talks about monogamy and that being like the final frontier for us, because humans have actually never done monogamy very well. And we've kind of forced ourselves into it and given ourselves this like tradition around it. And it does work for plenty of people, but it also is something that plenty of other people don't find to be the best fit. And that's not, it's, it's not as, um, wild and outlandish as we make it sound sometimes for people who might be unfamiliar with non-monogamous relationships. So yeah, like I liked how neutralized it was. And it was like so easy for me to just be like, oh yeah, like that's just like, I I even was kind of like, I don't know, maybe that's something I want to do. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And you know, and I urge people to not skip over the chapter, even if they know, okay, no, 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 because people get, people get very, um, upset with me when I bring up non-monogamy because it threatens, you know, their their views on the sure. world and their views on relationships. And um, it can be very upsetting for folks. So some people might be tempted to skip over that chapter because you're like, nope, not for me. Mm-hmm. But with rates rising so significantly now with the number of folks who are practicing ethical 
non-monogamy, mm-hmm. chances are you probably know someone or you will you will know somebody who is doing this at some yeah. point. So be mm-hmm. a good ally, right? Yeah. Read the chapter to be a good ally. Yeah. yeah. Same thing goes with like BDSM. Okay. So say you've tried it. It's not your thing. Based on the statistics, there are plenty of folks you know who are practicing it or who want to be an ally. Yeah. Right? Isn't it like 80 or 95% of women have uh, fantasized about being dominated? I think that's what it was. Something a very drastic number. Okay. See, you know, so they could all be exploring a lot more. I think when we're more, when we're honest with ourselves, there's so much more that we want to experience. And, and it really, it's all related to shame and feeling like those things are shameful and scary. And even using the word shame versus using like, um, there were words, I think it was like guilt, (laughs) guilt and fear. Fear is one that I use personally enter like when I mean shame, I'll use the word fear. And that was another one where it was, it was loud. Um, I was like, okay. (laughs) Um, but, but yeah, that, that, when people feel that shame towards these things and they just kind of drop them and, and you're missing out on so many wonderful, amazing experiences with new people and just like living this very exciting, fulfilling life. And, and, uh, I, I just, I like how everything is given in this book in baby steps in a neutralized way. It's easy to understand and easy to approach. And that's just like, that's just so special. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I want to make this, you know, not scary for folks and, and look at what the data is telling us. Cause you know that mm-hmm. I'm a facts and data and research girl because oh, yeah. it's the lawyer oh, yeah. in me. But, mm-hmm. you know, so often I say, okay, the data is telling us this. It's about time we have an open and honest conversation about this subject because mm-hmm. we're all doing it, but we're not talking about it. And mm-hmm. so instead of having to go out and buy a, an entire book on BDSM, um, <laughs> one that is more accurate than Fifty Shades. I'll just say that right now. But oh. instead of that, like, let's give you an overview here. And then if you want to read a whole book on trauma, if you want to read a whole book on ethical non-monogamy, mm-hmm. I give you lists of books to go yep. to, mm-hmm. right? So this is your personal development, your mm-hmm. relationship slash dating, and your sex book in one, but it's the beginning of your journey, not the end of it. Yes. Yeah, I love that. Also, as a quick aside, Fifty Shades of Grey is like, I think you said it's the most sold book in the last decade. Yeah. For so many reasons, that's so frustrating. And part of it is because a lot of it is just so not the way that any of that goes down in real life. And is like, there's no like conversations. It's almost like the the way that people demonize um, types of porn and the way that those those like lack of conversations are in porn that's 50 shades of gray and then there are other books i there's so many of these books i wish i had like any of them near me of course i don't but there are so many of these books that i read that are romance books where i can't tell you how many times i'm reading them and there are conversations that happen that didn't happen i didn't even read 50 shades of gray i'll be i'll be very honest i watched the movie and that was enough i Same. i was good yeah Same. i was like i don't i don't need any more of this i'm good um <laughs> But they'll talk about using condoms. They'll talk about having conversations about contraception contraception, and those things don't happen in Fifty Shades of Grey at all. And that's the one that people read. It's so upsetting. And Fifty Shades perpetuates this idea that you must have had some sort of abuse happen to you in order to be into kink. It's pathologizing. um, It's pathologizing people who are kinky. And the research tells us there is no link whatsoever. Mm-hmm. between practicing BDSM and having mental illness or, you know, surviving some sort of horrific abuse. So mm-hmm. we we are perpetuating this myth that yeah. there's something wrong with you if you're into this weird shit, basically, for lack of a better term. Yeah. And when a lot of us, like the majority of people are into and have fantasized about kink, and so we're pathologizing a whole hell of a lot of folks if we're doing that. That's yeah. the biggest, one of the biggest issues I have with with depictions like that. We don't have a lot of really good mainstream media depictions of, of kink done responsibly. 
-hmm. and kink just because like, hey, this is what I'm into because we don't choose our kinks. Yeah. And and not making it this big, scary thing. Yeah. Yeah. Women being interested in in being submissive was something that came up and you talked about why having someone else dominate them is like is specifically sort of a relief for women. Can you talk about about that? Yeah. So our fantasies reveal what our emotional needs are. And Mm -hmm. this is a perfect way to demonstrate that. At a time in history now where we as women are having to make more decisions than we ever have, right? As perhaps mothers, as perhaps spouses and partners, as uh, employees, as business owners, right? We're having to do a lot. And so it would make sense that behind closed doors, we have this emotional need for someone else to make some of those decisions. We are craving in the bedroom something that we don't have outside the bedroom. Mm-hmm. So I, I hear a lot of self-proclaimed feminists and you know empowered women saying, what is wrong with me that I just want to be tied up when I get behind closed doors? Does that yeah. make me a bad feminist? And it's like, no, no, no. This actually makes complete sense. Mm-hmm. We look at data that tells us that um, you know Republicans tend to have different fantasies than Democrats do. Oh, and yeah. So Republicans tend to fantasize about wife swapping, and you know we see these scandals in the news: um, non-monogamy, oh. gender bending, things that are more taboo wow. within you know a a religious, like socially and religiously conservative mindset. Whereas mm-hmm. self-identified progressive people tend to fantasize more about surrendering control mm-hmm. and actually kind of being taken advantage of. Right. They, right. And so it's once you start seeing these patterns, and I'll point you to a book if, if you're if you want to geek out on this stuff, because I could talk about this all day. I uh, do, I always do. <laughs> oh my gosh. Justin Lee Miller uh, of the Kinsey Institute, he is the world's expert on sexual fantasies and mm-hmm. uh, has done a, a tremendous amount of really fascinating research. And his book, Tell Me What You Want, cannot oh. recommend it enough. Okay, I'm gonna get it today. <laughs> I love it. I, I loved that whole description. And also it it's so funny because I think about the amount of times where I'm in that situation where it's like, okay, what do you want to do? What, what do you want? And I'm like, I don't want to decide. Actually, Mm -hmm. I would like to just, if you could just take the reins, that would be great. And I don't, I, by no means does that mean I want to, uh, pillow princess, uh, the whole situation. Sometimes I do, but, but most of the times that's not the case. And it's just, I don't want to make a decision about it. Actually. I'm good on the decisions for the day. So I loved that. And I was, as I was reading, I was like, yes, exactly. It's the decisions. I don't want to do any more of them. I'm done. I'm I'm tired. Yeah. The girl's tired. (laughs) I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted. Um, And we're like coming up on time, so we don't have too much time to talk about much else, even though there's so much in here. And it's just like, it's such a godsend, this book. I love it. I can't, I'm going to, I can't wait for it to be out. February 6th. Amazing. And I already have a list of friends that I I can't wait to gift this to because they're going to love it. Um, And I'm just so grateful that, that you put your heart and soul into it because it really shows. And it is like the perfect way to have a really holistic look at your sexuality because sexuality is holistic and it's not, it's not so isolated to, to the bedroom and what you're doing privately, but it carries through everything else. And that really shows in the way that this whole book was constructed. Thank you for the kind words. That mission accomplished, if that's how you feel. That is exactly how I feel. And um, is there anything else that you want to share about? I mean, there's, it's so crazy because I'm like scrolling through everything that I noted down and there's so much. Um, but is there anything else that you want to touch on about the book that we haven't gotten to? Um, I just want to leave people with this, this notion that curiosity is the antidote to judgment mm-hmm. and and really start getting curious about yourself start getting curious about other people because when we began approaching our lives and and the world around us from a place of curiosity it's revolutionary mm-hmm. it's revolutionary yeah and way more fun oh gosh yes <laughs> 
Well, thank you for coming on again. I literally could talk to you about your book for 16 hours. I've been, I, every time I read something and I'm sitting anywhere where my mom is in the vicinity, I'm like, I have to tell you what I just read. And I've been reading it out loud to anyone who will listen to it because it's just so good. So I appreciate you taking the time to talk to, to me today and share this with everyone who's going to read it. And I can't wait for everyone to read it and my listeners. And I'm just, I'm so thrilled for you. This is so amazing. Thank you for being such a huge supporter. I adore you. I adore you. Oh, yay. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. And thank you, Rena, for coming on the podcast again. I am so grateful that you wrote this book and that you've come to talk to us about it. It's so special to me and I can't wait to recommend it to every single person I know and don't know. I'll recommend it to strangers. I don't care. Everyone can go pick up their copy of The Sex You Want. We'll put a link in the description so you can easily find it. It is out today. I promise you, you are going to be as obsessed with it as I am and I can't wait to hear how much you all love it. <laughs>